Welcome to Matthew Felix, the radio episodes, Travelers on Travel. I'm Matthew Felix, author of the books With Open Arms, short stories of misadventures in Morocco, and the new Porcelain Travels. In February of 2018, what is now my Matthew Felix on Air video podcast began as an internet radio program in downtown San Francisco. The radio episodes, Travelers on Travel podcast, feature segments from that radio show, in which I talk travel with travel writers, journalists, photographers, and filmmakers. I hope you like the show. And don't forget to check out the current video podcast incarnation, Matthew Felix on Air, available here, as well as on Facebook and YouTube. Thanks for listening, and talk soon. Hey, check out my new book, Porcelain Travels, Humor, Horror, and Revelation, In, On, and Around, Toilets, Tubs, and Showers, an Amazon number one new release in four categories, including travel humor, and winner of Gold for Humor in the 2018 Solas Awards for travel writing. You can also check out Porcelain Travels' companion podcast of the same name, which comprises readings from eight stories, including two recorded before a live audience. Porcelain Travels the Book is available in paperback and ebook on Amazon and other online retailers. Don, isn't that perfect? That wasn't was that perfect? perfect. Yeah. That was Neither perfect. one of us had even heard of that song before, but when I found it last night preparing for the show, I was like, this is perfect. And Here then I was playing Tokyo. it right now and we were talking, he couldn't hear the lyrics. He's like, why? <laughs> why is that the one you thought would be perfect? But anyway. Story uh, of my life. Story of your life. Well, that's why it was perfect. Exactly. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, all right. So Don George has written more than 700 articles, edited 10 travel writing anthologies, and authored the world's best-selling guide to becoming a travel writer, Lonely Planet's How to Be a Travel Writer, which as of just a year ago is in its fourth edition. For 40 years, Don has been chronicling his travels for print and online media, finally bringing them together in his award-winning collection of essays and stories, The Way of Wanderlust, the best ri- travel writing of Don George. And since we're on Facebook Live, <laughs> am I allowed to show books? I can show books, right? <laughs> I don't know if that's on because I can't beautiful. actually see us. Uh, Don has been travel editor at the San Francisco. Yeah, there you go. You got that camera. I forgot. Don has been travel editor at the San Francisco Examiner Chronicle, Wanderlust founder and editor at Salon.com, and global travel editor, again, for Lonely Planet. He is currently editor at large for National Geographic Traveler, special features editor for BBC Travel, and editor of the GeoX blog, Wanderlust, Literary Journeys for the Discerning Traveler. If you're a travel writer struggling to find a job, it could very well be because Don has taken them all. <laughs> he is the co-creator and co-chair of the... I mean, are there any travel writing jobs left? I, I'm not sure there are. He's the co-creator and co-chair of the annual and upcoming Book Passage Travel Writers and Photographers Conference and the co-creator and co-host of Weekday Wanderlust. Don is currently, or at least he was, now school might be out, but it's currently the Lurie Distinguished Writer at San Jose. Is that still the case? Just ended. Just ended. Okay, that's what I was wondering. Until very recently, Don was the Lurie Distinguished <laughs> Writer at San Jose State University. And in addition to his writing and editing, he speaks, teaches, consults, and leads tours around the world. Not a bad life. Welcome back, Don. Thank you, Matthew. It's great to be here. It is great to have you a second time. So, Looking back, as we're going to do a lot of during today's chat, is it fair to say that being on my inaugural show was a career-defining milestone? <laughs> In all ways. It okay. truly was. Okay, that's what I would assume. It was the first time I'd ever been on your show. Right. So that was huge. That was a huge first. And, and 
And yes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Let me jump in there. Uh, okay, but, but, but big question here. Was it more of a thrill when you were asked the first time or when you were asked to come back? Because it sort no, of means that you had made it. You I know. know what I mean? See, being asked back is really a moment of, oh my God. Right. He did like me. Right. Right. <laughs> now, I did all right. Apparently. You did all right because I wouldn't have invited you back otherwise. No, that's now, what I thought. That being said, writer and Hidden Compass co-founder Sabine Bergman <laughs> actually beat you to being the first ever repeat guest. Oh, no. You're the second. Well, that's all right. Well, she, She's wonderful, so it's okay. Yeah, well, hold on. Uh, I know you know <laughs> Sabine, and I'm wondering, has the fact that she made it back to the show before you caused any sort of rift <laughs> between the two of you? And I'm asking for a reason. I'm asking because... And this is a little awkward, but she said last time that I, that I talked to her, which was a few days ago, she said you seemed a little distant the last, kind, the last time you guys <laughs> talked. And the way she describes it, you sort of snapped at her. And I guess the quote that I got from Sabine was, quote, I asked Don a question and he snapped at me. I reeled back, confused. <laughs> Don had never talked to me that way. All the while, under his breath, he kept muttering something about Matthew Felix on air and it should have been me. It should have been me. So do you remember that interaction? I mean, is that... God, I, I didn't realize that that got picked up. That she... Because, yeah, right. You thought it was kind of... I thought of, it was really subtle. Right. I, I thought I was keeping it under wraps, kind of. But. You know what? It's probably not that big a deal, but you might want to just check in with Sabine. Yeah, I will do that. I feel like there I might know, be a little right? bit of a mis- miscommunication yeah. oh, there. Oh, man. All right. I, I'm sorry about no, that. No, I'm here to I'm here to build bridges and mend, <laughs> mend relationships. Okay. Wanderlust. The term appears no less than four times in your bio. Yes. It's the title of your collection of writings. My middle it's, name. It's your middle name. <laughs> Don Wanderlust George. That explains it. Uh, it was the title of your travel section on Salon. It's the name of your GOX blog. And it's part of the name of your monthly event with the inimitable champagne-loving Kimberly Lovato. Yes. So, do you just have a really limited vocabulary? <laughs> exactly. Or does the term... And a, and a lack of There's imagination... Like five words. Exactly. Or does the term wanderlust, in all seriousness, hold this special place in your imagination? That's the word, yeah. wanderlust. So, tell me about the that word wanderlust. Because I love that word. for me. Yeah. How? Well, it's got wander and it's got lust. So, that's big right there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. The whole... The notion of being in love with travel and the the fact of travel the act of travel and what it does to you um i think that's at the heart of wanderlust yep that feeling that you've just got to keep going out there and seeing what's out there and going over the next hill and around the next bend and who are you going to encounter and what's what's out there what's the possibility the whole notion of possibility that's so huge in the term wanderlust i mean i just love i love that word it's been a big part of my life since i went to france in college <clears throat> yeah, and it's still still a big part of my life now. A few years after I went to France, just a few years after the college. Your, your college years. Yeah. Yes. So to that point, speaking of wanderlust, and uh, also as I did in your intro, speaking of tours, you are just recently back from uh, from sort of experiencing your wanderlust or, or acting on your wanderlust. Yeah. You just led a tour in Japan. Yes. So how was that? And what was in that about? Kyoto and Shikoku. Okay. It was about a two and a half week uh, stay, and it was wonderful. Um, we spend three, this is a small group of eight, uh, travelers, eight American travelers and me and a Japanese tourist guide. And, uh, we have an amazing time in Kyoto. First of all, kind of getting behind the scenes and seeing the gardens and the temples and meeting craftsmen there. And then we go to Shikoku, which is the fourth, which is the smallest of the four main Japanese islands. Okay. Way off the beaten path. Mm-hmm. Nobody goes there. The Japanese don't go there. Very, very, <laughs> very few Westerners go there. Uh-huh. And so we wander around. It's where my wife, Kuniko, is from. So uh-huh. I know the island pretty well. Mm-hmm. And we wander around. And over 
We've done this trip 10 times now, so I've become good friends with people we meet along the way. And it's like going back to a second home. And mm-hmm. it's really extraordinary to walk into a tiny restaurant or a tiny <coughs> craftsman studio and be welcomed with you know, big embrace and big smiles and, oh, Don-san, you're back. And it's a very, very special feeling at this point. Yeah. It's like being part of an extended family. Yeah. And the travelers who are with me get to experience that and they're a part of that and they're sort of included in the family feeling. Right, because you're sort of an insider. I'm an insider and at you're this bringing point. We have an amazing experience. And one of the most amazing experiences is we stay at a 300-year-old renovated farmhouse. Oh, nice. Way out in the impenetrable interior of Shikoku. <laughs> uh-huh. Way out there. And it's really a magical experience to fall asleep to the sounds of the forest around you, and then you wake up, and inevitably there's mist rising in the mountains, and it's just got this timeless kind of sumie Japanese ink and brush painting scene feel to it. It's yeah. pretty wonderful. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. So let's talk more about Japan because you have had a long love affair with Japan. I was going to say you've had two, but you kind of just alluded to the second, which we're <laughs> going to talk a little bit more about in a second. Um, but before we talk about your your two love affairs with Japan, mm. in addition to, to the fact that you just did this tour, uh, I wanted to mention a few things that I read from the intro to your book, The Way of Wanderlust, mm. that Pico Iyer wrote the foreword for you. And he mentioned a couple things about you and Japan that I didn't know. So you taught English there. I did. At some point. Okay. Right. Uh, but you speak perfect Japanese. Is that true? That's Pico being kind. Yeah. But, but you're, you're fluent. <laughs> I'm pretty or you can conversational. Conversational. Yeah. Within right. a certain... Within a certain vocabulary range, I'm very, very fluent. Yeah. When we start talking nuclear physics, I'm a little bit out of the conversation. Well, and yeah, and that, I mean, they've got nuclear there, so that probably comes up more than you would think, <laughs> right. right? So you probably found yourself a couple times, at least, in situations where you needed Knowing. to talk nuclear physics and, and you just couldn't. Right. You reach so the limits Google of your Translate. Japanese. You yeah. bring it out and you're like... <laughs> exactly. And that's when you learn the limits of Google Translate. It doesn't, you don't have to go that far to, to learn the limits of Google Translate. Uh, but, the, but the most interesting thing I found, though, that and this is really the secret reason why I brought up these three things, is just to get to this third one. You were a talk show host. Oh, yes, I was. So what was that? I was often called the Matthew Felix of Japan. The Matthew Felix of Japan. That must have been a huge weight. And what an honor. Right. Yeah. So it's a bit of a long story, but... We got time. um, Okay. Uh, NHK is the Japan National Broadcasting Corporation. It's the BBC of Japan. Okay. They have an educational channel, a whole series of educational uh, programs that they do. Um, And they had an English suite of programs within that series. And I was in Japan on a two-year fellowship, a Princeton in Asia teaching fellowship. And the guy who had gone two years before me on that fellowship had stayed on for another year in Japan. So when I arrived, he was there in his third year. So no longer on the fellowship, <coughs> teaching as a regular teacher at the university where the fellowship was. Okay. And he also had been hired by NHK to be a character in their sort of Sesame Street version <laughs> of... Their, their show. So they had an English language show that was a little bit like Sesame Street. And about a month before I arrived in Japan, the producers came to him and said, we're thinking of doing a high-level English language talk show, and we're wondering if you know anybody who might be a good host. So I landed da, on da, the da. shores of Japan and met Peter, was his name. And um, oh, you'd never met him before. I had just not Princeton met him before. Through this program yeah, that you I don't think I'd up. met him before, right. And... Um, I'd been there maybe a week, and he said, so I do this show with NHK, and they're looking for a a high-level English language talk show host. It would be a half hour once a week. 
the show is broadcast in all of the Japanese schools. Oh, wow. So like junior high school students, elementary school students, some high school students would watch it. And it would be on NHK, so anybody could watch it. And uh, he said, would you like that? <laughs> and I always had had a secret desire to be a talk show host. Uh-huh. Um, when I was growing up, there was a guy named Dick Cavett. I yeah. You're familiar yeah. with Dick Cavett. I'm he was with him. my yep. hero. Yeah. He was unbelievably cool uh-huh. and intelligent and smart and witty and all those things. And I thought, I want to be Dick Cavett. Yeah. So um, this was a great opportunity. <laughs> so I went down and auditioned the following weekend, I think. With about 20 other scraggly foreigners, uh-huh. we all were lined up in this hall in NHK, and the audition ended up being talking with my friend, Peter. Oh. So. That doesn't quite seem fair. <laughs> it seemed fair to me. Uh-huh. It seemed fine it to seemed you. totally fair right, to me. Right, right. So I did pretty well in that audition. I and bet then you they did. asked me back for another, and then they asked me back for another, and finally they asked me if I would like to do this. Wow. So I ended up doing it for two years. I was the host, and the show was called Watch and Listen. Oh, Wow. <laughs> so this is in all the English, all the Japan school, all the Japanese schools. Yeah. So did you actually attain some sort of fame? I mean, because if uh, all the kids are seeing you, yeah. even if it's once a week, they're all going to know who right. you are. Among a certain subset of Japanese people, yes. Right. Aged maybe 7 to 15. Right. I was huge. Right. I was just huge. That's awesome. Um, so truly, I mean, ridiculously, but wonderfully, Often, wherever I went, someone would come up to me saying, Don San, Don San, and yeah. ask me to sign an autograph. Yeah, I've started wearing a mask when I come to the studio because <laughs> the same exact thing. It's ju- and a, it's just yeah. crazy. I had to fight my way through a gauntlet of yeah. people outside. That was a different gauntlet. <laughs> that was a different gauntlet. We've contacted the city about that gauntlet, and it's, it's a never-ending uh, challenge. <laughs> So the uh, so the other love affair to which I was referring initially, like I said, you've already mentioned, and this is of course the love affair that you share with your Japanese wife Kuniko. Yes. yes. And in the way of wanderlust, you say that the most extraordinary journey of your life was when you traveled from San Francisco to Kuniko's home village of Johan, mm-hmm. right, uh, to observe and celebrate your marriage in the uh, Japanese Shinto style. Right. So can you tell us briefly about that story, which for some reason you call Japanese wedding? And why it was the most extraordinary journey of your life. Certainly the most life-transforming journey, taking you know, the big step of yeah. getting married. And this, I couldn't tell from the way that was written. Uh, had you already been married here Actually, in the States? Actually, we had, in a, yeah. right, We've been married in a it. Protestant ceremony. Yeah. So I was raised in the Congregational Church in Middlebury, Connecticut. Yeah. So we got married in the First Congregational Church in Berkeley, which was wonderful. Yeah. And then three months later, we went to Japan. Yeah, we went to Japan to to have the Shinto ceremony there. Right. So we go way, way, way out into the country because Johan is way away from civilization. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful town, set among farming, you know, farming villages and fishing villages, and really spectacularly situated. Really kind people. And you had never been before this wedding, or had you already I been? I had been. You I had, had been, been a few okay. times. Okay. I, was, right. I was the foreigner, basically. Okay. Yeah. I was known as the foreigner. Right. So we ended up having the ceremony in Kuniko's home, and uh, there was a, tra- a friend of hers who did a traditional Japanese dance, really beautiful. Um, and then the actual ceremony itself is a, is a Shinto priest presiding over, saying some chants, and... Um, offering us, pouring us three bowls of sake. Mm-hmm. And you drink sake three times. It's called san san kudo. Mm-hmm. You drink sake three times and then you're married. 
Oh, wow. That's it. That's pretty easy. I know. Yeah. <laughs> so, so be wow. careful what you do in sake bars in Japan. Yeah, it almost makes you think maybe you didn't need to go all the way to Japan for that. <laughs> We've got plenty of sake here. Interesting. It was quite wonderful. Being yeah. surrounded by her family and friends and in a way the whole town was kind of a part of the celebration. Some little kids down the street did a lion dance for me in their garage for, for us. And uh, there were a lot of very, very nice things done and things said. And it was a really memorable, wonderful experience. So you talk a little bit in your story about um, what it's like being the only Westerner who shows up in this remote island of right. Japan. So tell us a little bit about that, because I think I think that can be sometimes one of the some of the most interesting, curious experiences that we have if we end up as travelers in these places where we are just not only just the foreigner because we're from another country, but we're foreign sort of in every way. And right. to people's reactions. And tell us a little bit about that, like you did in the story. Yeah, truly you're foreign in, in every way. And I remember one of the things early on in my visits, there was a summer festival that I wanted to take part in. But to do so, I had to wear the traditional you know, yukata or kimono. And I had to put on the traditional wooden geta, which oh. are these those wooden shoes, sandal-like with, things, with two pillars. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. So, yeah. one, they didn't have any that fit the foreigner's <laughs> feet, and two, I'd never walked on those before. Right. right. But well, that's okay. Um, so, as as you know, one of the things you learn early on in travel is that making a fool of yourself is a very good art to master, and yes. I've really mastered it. Yeah. So, in this case, I was in my in my world, in my zone. Uh huh. Um, I got a a yukata which came down to about mid thigh. It's really th- supposed to come down to your knee, but um, yeah, so that was fun. <laughs> and um, and then I put on my geta and I traipsed through. I mean, I danced through the the streets of the village along with everybody else. I was kind of the foreigner at the end of the line, and people went crazy. They were yeah. screaming, applauding, <laughs> yelling. Uh-huh. Um, I think it really endeared me to the village that I could do that. I don't doubt that it did. <laughs> Yeah, and the words to the 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 dance the the words to the dance the song that the dance is do, done to is uh, those who dance are fools, those who watch are fools too. Uh. If we must be fools, why not be fools dancing? Amen. Right. That's a good one. Exactly. That's a good so one. That's my philosophy of life now. Yeah. Um. So jumping back to your wedding and foolishness, because you just reminded me of this. Um. You, at your wedding, you sang the one Japanese song you know. Yes. Can you do that for us now? <laughs> <laughs> Is that still I, up there? I could do that. You could do that, but you're, you're not going to. to. Oh, yeah, oh, we I, don't. I could sing like three bars of it if you Okay, want. Facebook might actually censor us, I guess, at that. Oh, yeah, oh, you can? You'll do three bars. I could do a little I bit. I missed that. I started already. Yeah, oh, do it. So Please. Ima watashi no nagai koto wa kanaru naraba. Tsubasa ga hoshi. See, it's go. performances like that that get you back a second time. <laughs> it's not it's it's not coincidence that he is back here a second time. I didn't think he was gonna do it. I wow, okay. Uh the other thing you also claim, speaking of foolishness, before we move on from uh, your Japanese wedding story, mm. you also claim that slurping and sucking noodles Indeed. makes them taste better. It, as it does. Yeah. Yeah. Tell totally, us about that. Totally. Yeah. So in, in Japanese culture, it's considered impolite not to slurp. Oh, okay. You know, because slurping shows how delicious it really is. Mm. So you need to remaster. When we were children, we knew this. Oh, but our parents often true. said, no, don't do that. So right. we, we unlearned the art of 
slurping. But so sad. I, yes. So, so sad. Don't so that's why it. you need to come on my tour because we practice the fine art of slurping. Well, there's a sales we pitch get, right there. There's right there. There's a sales pitch. <laughs> on the island of Shikoku, we go to a place called Takamatsu, which has very, very famous udon, sanuki okay. udon. Okay. And we go <laughs> like that. <laughs> And it's really good. Okay. It all right. I'm sold. So good. I'm there. Let me know when the next tour is. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. So again, that story, Japanese Wedding, is in your book, The Way of Wanderlust. But let's talk, if you don't mind, more about your book. I, I would Isabella love to. Allende, I thought you might. Isabella yeah. Allende had this to say about it. Quote, these stories made me fall in love with the world again. Okay. First of all. It's pretty nice. It's pretty nice. First of all. I'm sorry to hear that Isabel had fallen out of love with the world. <laughs> I'm glad you were able to provide the antidote. But secondly, if anyone said that about my book, I would be moved and touched. How did it feel to have Isabel Allende say that? It was unbelievable. It was one of the greatest moments in my life, really, in there some ways. Go. I mean, to have such an incredibly brilliant writer, warm, wonderful, amazing human being, one of the all-stars of the planet, basically, say that about my stories, my book. Yeah, I, I can hardly find words for it. Okay, well, then I won't make you. <laughs> but I was impressed. Uh, okay, so, um, so so with regards to the book, 40 years, 700 articles, why did it take so long for you to, to, to bring this collection together? <laughs> Indeed. And how and why did it finally come together? Um, partly it took a long time because... I didn't own the rights to all of the stories. Ah, okay, sure. And early on when I first thought about doing the book, that was a bit of a problem. And so I thought, well, I guess I'll just put that idea off. And then it just kind of went away or went on a back burner for a long time. Doing other things. And, yeah. Right. And then at the Book Passage Travel Writers and Photographers Conference, that wonderful event um, every August, I one of the students there was a very wonderful person named Candace Rose Reardon. And we were talking and at one point she said to me, so like, what's your dream? What do you really, really want to do? And I said, well, actually what I really, really want to do is put together a collection of my best travel stories. But, and, and I just sort of trailed off and she said, well, why don't you? You know, like what's keeping you from doing that? Right. And I said, oh, it just seems so overwhelming. It's just so many stories to go through. How do you even go about putting a book together? It's just, I just don't know how to do it. And she said, well, we're going to do it. There you go. And she pretty much made it happen. Wow. I mean, um, I mean, she was amazing. She sort of worked with me and said, this is what we need to do. We need to organize your stories. We need to figure out what's available and what, what makes sense. And we need to choose the stories. And we just kind of worked through it month by month by month. She was amazing and uh, really helped me. We know it down to about 40 stories, and then we came up with 35 finalists for the book. Yep. And they sort of fell naturally into three sections, which mm -hmm. was kind of wonderful. Yep. So we had pilgrimages, encounters, and illuminations, and then we added a story at the beginning and a story at the end, and that gave 35 stories. And, and then it was a matter of uh, the really great people at Traveler's Tales, Larry Habiger and company, saying they wanted to publish the book and so working very happily with him. Yep. Candace amazingly did illustrations for the book. She did maps for the book. I love her she illustrations. She did the incredible cover for the book. Yep. Uh, Larry was a dream to work with and uh, just made the book exactly the way it needed to be, should be. And it's the proudest uh, 
literary creation I have in my life. And, and I just, it's such a thrill for me to be able to give it to someone and say, here's my life basically right. between two covers. Right. This is me. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's unbelievably rewarding and fulfilling to have that book in the world. As indeed it should be. And for the readers as well, I can say firsthand. Uh, but I just want to add a little bit, in addition to those three categories, I want to give people a little bit more information. So the stories range from your first story about Kilimanjaro in right. 1977, yeah. all the way from 1977 to an article that appeared as recently as 2015. Mm-hmm. So it really does, like you were saying, it really so, does span your entire career yeah. uh, to date. They take place in 20 countries on six continents, from Connecticut to California, from France to Greece to, as we've already talked about, Japan. Uh, So basically, Don and his stories are all over the place. (laughs) But I wanted to go back uh, a second to something you just referred to, which, of course, was the process of of bringing all this together. First Mm. of all, wading through 700 stories just to kind of sort them out. But then... The, the process whereby you selected them and, and whittled it down. And you, and you talked about that at a high level, but something you said, actually it wasn't a high level, you talked about that, but something specific you said about how you did that really uh, stood out for me. I think this was in, in the intro to your book, yeah. Quote, At first the task seemed daunting, but as I read through those hundreds of articles, a few stood out as having a particularly powerful sense of personal engagement and of focusing on the inner as well as the outer journey. So the inner and outer journey. So mm. a lot of travel writing is sort of focused on we went here, we did this, and right. we had this amazing adventure, which is completely legitimate and can be really interesting and worthwhile in and of its own. But for me, one of the things that distinguishes your writing and that I like about your writing, particularly compared to others, is this focus on the inner journey as well. Mm. So it's two journeys. So how and why did the inner journey uh, become something you also wanted to emphasize in your writing versus kind of just focusing on, mm. on the outer one? That's a great question. Um, so, yes, I mean, one of the things I like to say when I teach writing is that really great travel writing is the record of two contemporaneous journeys, one into the world outside the writer and one into the world inside the writer. Mm-hmm. And I really feel that that's what great travel writing is. I think in my career... Climbing Kilimanjaro, the very first story in the book, was written as an assignment for a graduate school nonfiction writing class. I don't think... Well, it did delve somewhat into the inner world. Already I was kind of doing that. Mm -hmm. And then in the stories following that, I think I began to do it, especially when I became the travel editor at the Examiner Chronicle. And um, I had this platform. I had a weekly column. And there was... a bit of, I think, a contextual expectation that if you had a column, you could be personal. Mm. So I began writing very personal essays about Paris and the effect it had on me or traveling around California and the effect it had on me. And they were meant to be um, records of a journey that a reader could do, but they were also meant to be sort of illuminations of the world and the power that the world can have on us as travelers. And I felt permitted or allowed to do that since I was the travel editor and I had this column with my name on it and my photo on it. So suddenly I began being very personal and I think had the reaction to those columns been negative, I would have stopped, but the reaction was overwhelmingly positive. I got, this was back in the day when letters were written still. Mm -hmm. I got letters in the mail from people saying, thank you so much for that column where you talked about breaking down and crying in the museum or, or Whatever it was, very personal moment, that really moved me a lot. I've had a similar experience myself and 
kind of, I hope you'll keep writing this way. So I kept writing that way. What wonderful validation. Yeah, it was really wonderful validation. Yeah, especially you're going out on this limb and am I going too far or is this resonating? And to get that kind of validation exactly. is empowering. Exactly, because yeah. it is scary. You're doing something that you think, is this all right? Is right. this okay? You're making yourself vulnerable am to I the be world. Fired? Essentially. <laughs> totally, right? Which is a pretty big risk to Which take. is what I like to do when I travel. Yep. I always preach the fine art of vulnerability, opening yourself up to wherever you go and saying, here I am, you know, do with me what you will. Right. And in a way, yes, thank you. I was doing that with the readers too and kind of saying, I trust you. I hope you like this. Don't let, let me, me know. know. Yeah. And they did. So that was really, really validating and affirming. And I think it encouraged me even more to keep doing that with my writing and New journalism was in full swing, and it was a time of great experimentation and innovation and sense of nonfiction could really do things nonfiction hadn't done before. And I, I felt like I was part of that whole process. Yep, yep. So I would love just to go through story by story, which, of course, <laughs> we're not going to be able to do. And that's why I'm glad we you know, touched on the different categories to get people an idea and just sort of the, the breadth and the, the chronology and some of the subject matter. But... One story that stood out for me, and it sort of selfishly, for selfish reasons, stood out for me, is uh, Letters from Jordan. Mm -hmm. And I say selfishly because the story stood out in particular because of so much of what you say about your trip there, which was 16 years ago, could be said for my trip to Central Asia just mm. a month ago. And the commonalities that I'm referring to touch on much bigger themes that I think uh, often apply to travel, especially to places that we might think of as somewhat further, uh, further afield. Mm -hmm. So... Can you go back 16 years for us? Like I said, we're going to be uh, going back in time here. And can you tell us why you went to Jordan, first of all? I went to Jordan because no one was going to Jordan. It was a time of great unrest in the Middle East and discord between the U.S. and, and the Middle Eastern countries. And um, being in the United States, every night on TV, you would hear the pundits, you know, the TV people talking about the word on the Arab street, right. what the Arabs were saying. And at one point, I just I was at Lonely Planet then, and I just thought, I'm really tired of hearing these people who I don't even trust telling me the, what the word on the Arab street is. How many of them speak Arabic, I wonder? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And how many of them have been walking the Arab have street been actually that they're been supposedly on the reporting right, from? Right. So I said, you know what? I'm going to go to the Arab street, and I'm going to find out what the, I'm going to hear what the word on the Arab street is. And uh, so I put together a trip for, with Lonely Planet's blessing to go to Jordan. And it was one of the great trips of my life, partly because there were so few tourists there. And you realized, one, what an impact tourism has on a place like Jordan, which really relies on tourism. And when the tourists fall away. And there weren't many tourists, just to contextualize this, because, again, it was, it was a year after 9-11. Right. Because you had mentioned that there was turmoil in the region. But since that's always the case. Right. Yes, it, right. Um, it was specifically, Specific it was almost turmoil. like one year to the day. Yeah, almost, it was a year after 9-11. After 9 exactly. So that's the context yeah, here. Yeah, right. And so it was a very fraught atmosphere. And I just thought, I want to be here. I want to know what these people are thinking. And what I was very surprised to find was that they wanted me to be there too. Interesting. And mm -hmm. they wanted to know what Americans were thinking. So I'd gone there thinking, I'll be a bridge. I will you know, take story. I'll find stories and I'll bring them back to my readers and I'll tell them what the word on the Arab street is. What I didn't realize is that they wanted to know what the word on the American street is. Which is interesting. Nobody yep. was... They didn't have any reliable sources for that. Right. So suddenly I became a real bridge, a two-way bridge, a two-way street. And that was really thrilling to me. And of course that happens whenever we travel, but that really, really signaled for me that this is, this is part of the wonder of travel, that you're a moving 
medium. You're you're CNN. Right. When right. you when you go somewhere, you are representing the world that you're coming from just as much as you're discovering the world you're entering into. That was so super true. exciting for me. So true. And it almost probably made the trip seem more important. Way I more suspect, important, right? Way way more yeah. important. There yeah. are so many moving moments when people would ask me what's going on in the US and what do the what do Americans think about us and and then there were moments when one I remember in particular I went into a rug store and uh, you know beautiful carpet shop and the man began to pull out his carpets and show them to me and I said sir I thank you I'm so sorry I'm I'm not wealthy I don't have any money basically right. I'm right. not going to be able to buy one of your carpets they're yeah. beautiful they're wonderful and he still kept pulling more out and I said sir no, really. Really, honestly, I'm sorry, but I can't. And he said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You're my first visitor in three months. Oh, that's just heartbreaking. I just wanted to tell you about my carpets. Right. Just give me and something so to we do had and let like, me share. We yeah. had a half hour together when he told me about his carpets. And right. He was thrilled. Right. I and bet. that was a really, really moving moment to realize that he hadn't had a visitor in three months. What does that do to your business, your life, your sense of who you are in the world. I'm pretty sure it's not good for business. It's not good or for the business. Rest. No. Or the rest. Yeah. Let's go back one step. So you decide you're going to go, but you're not there yet. And it is a year after 9-11. Right. And you are going to a part of the world. You're going because you're not convinced you really know what's going on there. I mean, that's part of why you're going. Right. So what do your friends and family say when you tell them that you're going to Don't Jordan? Don't go. <laughs> you're exactly. crazy. Exactly. You're crazy. They're because going to they're spit afraid. at you, throw rocks at you. Right. Something terrible is going to happen to you. Don't right. go. And they told you so many of those things or had so many of those concerns that in the story you talk about how you started to have them yourself. Right. Right. Because you start right. to sort exactly. of second guess, I'm guessing, yes. yourself. I right. did. And right. I, there was a moment, there was truly a moment when I thought, is this really crazy? Maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe I'm being, you know, suicidal and, and ridiculous. And, right. Uh, I but thought about went. it, and I went, "No, you know, I gotta go. And I've got to do this." And what happened when you did, with regards to what you discovered, and you know, the general feel of the place and the safety, and, and unbelievably warm and welcoming, unbelievably warm and welcoming. Everyone was so happy to see me. They'd say, "Where are you from?" I'd say, "America." They'd say, "America," and they'd hug me and welcome me into their shops and give me free food and free coffee. And it was just a, a celebration that an American was there. Yep. And so that taught me so many lessons. One, kind of go with your gut. Yep. Two, we're more important than we realize as travelers. Um, and, and three, the world is so in intricately intertwined we need to remind ourselves of that all the time and, and, and just how much we share in common with these people that we think are the other and that we fear and that we think we land there and we're going to be you know, thrown rocks at. Uh, on the contrary, I was so warmly welcomed into everybody's homes and house, you know, hearts that um, it really it changed me in a lot of ways. Yep. And that's one of the reasons I bring this up is because that was so much what I just experienced in Central Asia. You know, people before I left, we hear about the civil wars and it's right next to Afghanistan. And I was considering going along the border of Afghanistan. I knew, well, I knew I was going to have to be there for a little while. So then, of course, I wasn't I was deliberately not telling people that, uh, mm. you know, friends and family, because right. I didn't want them to be nervous. And then I'm wondering, all right, well, if it's just a day driving along the border, are there really going to be Taliban who are jumping over, who are, you know, <laughs> looking for the lone American? Because, you know, I usually travel by myself. And so I had it was very, very similar. And I get there and I had the exact experience that you did. I could not believe, and I talked about this a little bit on the episode when I came back, 
could not believe how warm and welcoming the people in Uzbekistan were. They were all excited. Why are you here, an American? You know, I didn't see the three weeks that I was in Central Asia itself because I was gone for a month, but I was only in Central Asia for three weeks. I saw one group of Americans. So I was this anomaly and they were, oh my God, you know, what are you doing? So everything that you just described again, that's why this kind of touched on me right now or touched me right now um, because I think it is so important. So then I found myself the ambassador. I found myself you know, relaying information and, and all of that stuff you just got done describing. Right. And it's just, it's just so moving and inspiring and, and all those things. And it totally changes the tenor of your trip. It, it becomes does. so much richer and deeper and meaningful right. than just going somewhere and having a good time and coming home. Right. It's way, way more layered and important than exactly. that. Exactly. Exactly. The other thing I want to say about this, or would like to um, cite from your, from the Jordan story, Jordan letters, right? Letters, mm-hmm. letters from, from Jordan. Jordan. Letters of Jordan? From. From Jordan, Letters yeah. from Jordan. Uh, because I loved how you ended this. Um, well, I don't know if this was the ending, but close to the ending. On the quote, on the tenth and final day of my Jordanian adventure, I am back where I began in Amman. Only the place looks entirely different to me. Now all these, and I'm paraphrasing, things that seemed novel before, quote, have become so familiar that I hardly notice them. What a gift! This is how tr- travel stretches us. For me now, waking up to dusty dawn, wail to prayer looking onto tiny streets crammed with shops topped with Arabic loops and twirls, where men in kefiya sip tiny cups of cardamom-scented coffee, is intimate and familiar. It has become a part of my world, and so it will remain forever. Mm. So the way you say it is beautiful, but the sentiment itself is, is, I just love how you captured that, because that is, again, that resonates so deeply with regards to how I experience this. So, mm. and so many others do, of course, so travelers. So, how do those things you mentioned that you get someplace and you're just overwhelmed and, and if it's someplace new and everything's for it and you're just, you're, it's, it's sensory overload. Mm. But then in your case, 10 days later, or I like to, if I can, go sit someplace for a month and you can just watch reality change before you. So tell me right. about your experience of how right. it becomes familiar when it started off just so unfamiliar and out there. Yeah, I, I love listening. I loved hearing what you just said. Um, hearing my words actually i haven't <laughs> i haven't heard them in a long time uh-huh. and I, it's almost embarrassing to say it i felt immediately transported back to those moments uh-huh. i mean i don't know if the writing's that good but it really it really i think it's pretty me. good <laughs> it really i think it, maybe it's just larry or whoever edited it <laughs> yeah, but right. whoever's good responsible editor. ultimately it's pretty good yeah it really transported me uh, i yeah i mean those scenes the cardamom scented coffee i mean that really transported me right back there. And, and I, when you said, I, I have it inside me, I was like, yes, I actually still do. It's, yeah. it's coming right back into my brain right now. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. So I think it, it is a gradual process of assimilation when you're in a place. At first, everything, you're on overdrive. You're, this, is, this is crazy. This is new. This is bizarre. This is amazing. And that's why I always say that write down a lot in your first like 36 hours in a place because that's when it's all incredibly fresh and new and vital. And you're like, oh my you. God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. So write all that <laughs> stuff down because 10 days later, it's going to be, oh yeah, donkey in the street. Yeah. Right, I'm used so to that. I'm, yeah. I'm totally used to that. So I don't know, it's, it's imperceptible when it actually happens, but I think it's probably day two or three or four, you hear the call to prayer and you're like, oh yeah, the call to prayer. Yep. It's a little bit like when you go to Africa and the first day you're like, oh my God, a lion. Oh my God, a giraffe. Oh my God, a wildebeest. Yeah. And then on day three, you're like, oh Jesus. Another wildebeest? <laughs> oh, so many lions. I thought these things were endangered. <laughs> right. They're like pigeons here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So 
capture the wonder, those moments of wonder when you first have them because they will become dulled. But it is a wonderful thing, as I said in that story. It's really a great gift that that place is now a part of you. The call to prayer is something you'll never forget. And when you hear someone reading your words many years later, you'll, you'll hear that call to prayer in your head reverberating. Right. right. Or if you return... Yeah. Because what happens to me, you know, I lived in Istanbul 25 years ago, and, you know, I'll go 10 years without going back, and I kind of forget that it's a part of me. Right. I stop oh, sort yeah, of totally. identifying, uh, you know, with the Turkish Matthew from 25 years ago, whatever. Right. I'll get off the airplane or on it, I'm like, and I will be shocked that uh, this is a part of me. Yeah. And, and that's why yeah. that resonated so much, because I'm not going around thinking in those terms. I get there and I'm like, it's beyond, this is just familiar. No. It's... Right. This it does. These places it's become parts you. of ourselves. It's literally inside. I yes. get that in Paris multiple times. I, Paris is the place that changed my life. I lived there the summer between my junior and senior years in college, and then again the summer after my senior year. And um, it just totally changed me and my sense of the world and my role in the world. And I went back a couple of summers ago and just rediscovered that all over again. I, I kept initially looking for the old me, mm. and then I realized that there's no finding the old me. The old me is always there. It's all, the old me is always inside me and Paris is always inside me. Right. The old me in Paris is always inside me. Mm-hmm. It's alive every single moment of every single day. Right. And being in Paris just brought it to the fore. That's what it, it is. To the surface. That's what it is. Suddenly, exactly. bam, oh yeah, this is me. This is Paris. I've always been here. I've right. never left. Right. And that's an extraordinary moment when yeah. that happens. Amen. <laughs> All right, I would love to keep going down that line of thinking, but we've got five more minutes, and so I want to talk about some upcoming things, some very important upcoming things. I know, exactly. Uh, How time flies. I know, how time flies when you're reliving the past (laughs) Uh, and talking about fantastic writing. So the book passage, travel, and writer... Right. The book passage, travel, writers, and photographers conference, uh, that's coming up in August. August 9th through 12th, book passage in Corte Madeira. We have an all-star lineup of great people. The wonderful Tim Cahill mm-hmm, is coming. Mm-hmm. Um, Andrew McCarthy, the great oh, writer. Oh, he's coming this yes, year. Yes, okay. he's coming. Interesting. Did not know uh, that. Pauline Fromer, great editors, great all kinds of great writers, editors, photographers. Um, it's really, really a life-changing experience every year for people. And you co-founded this. I co-founded it. And you co-chaired this ago. 27 years ago. That was my next question. I couldn't remember how long it's been. 27 yeah. years ago. And uh, Bob Robert is the Holmes, co-chair. Bob Holmes, Bob yeah, Holmes the wonderful the photographer. Yeah. He's been on this show as well. Yeah, he's amazing. Uh, and I, of course, attended uh, the book pass it, and my listeners have heard me talk about this many times before. So I attended last year, and it was a game changer. So anyone who is even remotely on the fence if you're thinking about going if you're not thinking about going you should be thinking about going if you're a travel writer or even if you're not i don't think you even have to be a travel writer i mean that's the focus or a photographer Mm. um but if you're a writer who travels i mean it doesn't i think it's pretty and the people are great and i can't recommend it highly enough so again tell me the date again Uh, that's august August, 9 to 12 9 to 12 but you do something before and after i do a one day in the field workshop which is a one day intensive travel writing workshop on august 8th i'll be doing that Yep. And, and that then, goes to Sonoma. So people can sign up for that independently of the conference or as part of the conference. 
And Bob does something and Bob the day does before the same as thing well. Same thing as well. Same thing. Yeah, that's and, awesome. Yep. Sonoma. Yep. Okay. And it's bookpassage.com. You can sign up or call Book Passage in Corte Madeira. All right. The other event we want to make sure we talk about, otherwise Kimberly will just be <laughs> stark raving mad, is Weekday Wanderlust. And we're not going to talk too much about it because that, of course, is we went in, in depth into Weekday Wanderlust on my first episode. Right. But uh, again, I do want to nonetheless say that it is next Wednesday, this or this, Tuesday. sorry, Tuesday. I was seeing weekday and changed that to Wednesday. <laughs> it's this Tuesday, uh, June 12th at the Mystic Hotel in downtown San Francisco. Readings start at 7.30, but drinks start at 6.30. Is that right? No, six. I was going to say that looks right. Or that Drinks looks wrong. start at six, readings start at seven. Okay, thank you. And that's why you're here. And we have three great, amazing readers this time. And who are they? Jeff Greenwald, Amanda Jones, and Larry Habiger. All right. Three all-stars. And rumor has it, we might be leaving out the most important thing, which is Maybe. that we're also going to be celebrating your birthday. We will. So happy birthday. Thank you very much. Thank uh, you. Has the actual, is that the actual day? No. Or it's a little bit later than it's that. It's a little bit later, but we're yeah. just going to we're going to pretend that that's, that's the actually. All right. So happy birthday a little bit in advance. Thank you very much. Uh, you are also going to be leading some tours. I just want to throw this out because we are out of time. So you just did Japan. Uh, next year, you're going where? Or, or later this year and next year, you're going where? I'm going to Japan later this year. And then I'm I'm going to France and Greece and Japan next year. Okay. So I'm going to throw out all your links, or at least I think all your links. Tell me if I left any out. You just mentioned Book Passage Travel Writers and Photographers Conference is on bookpassage.com. Weekday Wanderlust is on Facebook. And if you want to go tour with Don, which of course you do, go to geox.com. And uh, if you just want to just face on with Don George, go to don-george.com. That's don-george.com. You're so much fun and such an inspiration, both personally and professionally. Thank you very much. Happy birthday again, and thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Matthew. It's a really a pleasure to be on the show with you. It's a pleasure to have you, and I look forward to a third appearance. <laughs> Me too. I'll analyze this after your appearance today. And then, but but I, I'm feeling pretty good about it. <laughs> the singing was amazing. <laughs>